Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Pernille Rip is a really interesting teacher. She hails from Wisconsin. She's got a background in teaching fourth and fifth grade. She's currently a seventh grade teacher. She's also a global influencer as the creator of the Global Read Aloud project, which is a literacy initiative that's connecting millions of students around the world. She is a speaker. She is an author. She is a game changer in understanding the way in which learning works. We're really excited to be talking with her today. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil. And uh, Pranil, we really appreciate you being present with us, especially in our current circumstances that uh, all of us in education are finding ourselves in. Thank you again. So my first question is a very simple one, and that's a little bit around your story. Can you tell us about your journey and how you've gotten to where you are today? Well, I think my journey is not one that was meant to bring me here. If you had told me as a child that I'd be sitting in Wisconsin um, as a teacher in the American public school system trying to change the way the system works for kids from the inside out, I would have laughed. Um, Because first of all, I was born and raised in Denmark, and there was no reason for me to leave one of the happiest nations in the world. Yeah. but my mom had a wandering heart and um, throughout my childhood, she kept getting these incredible opportunities to go and teach in the world through Fulbright and other scholarships. And, and so I was in and out of my home nation, but my mom was a teacher too. And so when she asked me what I wanted to be as a child, I told her that I would certainly never be a teacher because that was like for losers, right? Like that was not what people do, did if they wanted to really change the world. Um, which of course is now the irony of my life. But when I was 18, we immigrated to Wisconsin, a state I did not know where was. I had to look it up on a map and I thought I was going to come here for a year. Um, And, uh, you know, 21 years later, here I am sitting not only as a teacher, but still in this state wondering why I'm still here as far as the weather, but but loving the life that I have. and so when I think about teaching, it was, I was never one of those people that grew up knowing that teaching was going to be my thing. And it almost, I, I stumbled upon it accidentally. But I will tell you that once I connected with education, I knew right away that this was it for me, that sitting down with a child and truly seeing them for who they were and not focusing 100% on the learning, but just trying to figure out that child's journey and getting them tools to change their own journey was it. And so I, I graduated with honors and was terrified of becoming a teacher and became a teacher and then promptly fell into all of the things that I thought good teachers did, that no one had really taught me, but it was kind of this assumption about good teaching, good teachers graded, good teachers gave a lot of homework, good teachers had punishment and reward systems, and everything was about the task and the completion and making sure kids knew how serious this learning was. 
And when kids wouldn't fit into the system I had meticulously created, I would sit and go, well, I wonder what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And I would try to kind of control and tighten up the control and, and show them the results of their decisions. You know, do you know you're not turning in this homework? Now you got a zero. Do you know what a zero does for your letter grade? Mind you, I'm telling this to nine-year-olds who are not seeing their long future ahead of them, but instead are trying to fit into, you know, fourth grade. And so after a few years of being a fine teacher, because I was, I was a just fine teacher. If you'd walked into my classroom, you wouldn't have run away screaming. You would have been like, yeah, she knows what she's doing. I recognized that I was not on the journey I had set out to be, that what I had ended up doing was crushing everything that I had held so dear in my own spirit as far as a child, of being recognized for, for the individuality that I was so proud of, of being given a voice and choice and finding ways for people to really see me. I craved that connection and I wasn't giving that to my students. And so um, I made the decision to quit teaching and, uh, and, and, and really was like, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was like, this is not it. Like clearly maybe with something with kids, but not like this because this system, I can't work with it. And I went home and I told my, my husband, it was the end of the school year. And, and he was kind of like, you know, you can't, you can't change the kids, but you can change the way you teach. And I'm sure for him, it was such a throwaway comment. But for me, it was truly like this moment of like, well, duh, like, why had I never thought of that? Why had I never taken the time to sit down and reflect on the boxes that I was creating and how they were impacting kids versus what I could change rather than always asking them to adapt to my needs? And so that summer, I really felt overwhelmed with the system itself, but then also realized that I wasn't alone, that this was a path that people had been walking for many years I mean, more than 100 years. And my job was now to get connected with them. And so that's what I did. And I started just questioning. I knew I couldn't blow up the system because I work in the public school system. So as much as I wanted to, you know, blow up standardized testing and grades and all of these things, all of that wasn't... Make, all of which would make Adriano really, really happy if you did that. <laughs> right. Me but... too. Like, I'm on board for that. But that that wasn't a possibility. So instead, it was this 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 idea of like okay i have these systematic barriers but how can i make this about kids instead yeah. and so i really went back into it with just this inquiry spirit knowing that my students probably had a lot more answers of what they needed than what i could sit and think of myself and so that's that's the journey i've been on for the last 10 years it's been this really humbling you know, sometimes really hard journey of constantly saying to kids, how can I make this better? What can we do? How can I change what we need to do? Here are the things that we have to do, but how can we get there and make this worth it to you? And so it has been incredible. And it has really given me so much hope for our future because we see these kids and, and the way that they advocate for their needs. And sometimes we push that aside and we're like, well, kids need to learn their place. And it's like, how about instead we teach them how to hone their voice and, and not because they have to advocate with kindness, because I think we use kindness as a way to block children, but, but say, how are you going to use it? And what are you going to fight for? And I'm going to do everything I can to give you tools to go and fight for it. So I want to just explore that a little bit further. In uh, one of your books, Passionate Learners, Giving Our Classrooms Back to Our Students, um, I read a quote from that book, and I'll read that quote out now for our listeners, that it doesn't take much to start the change, that simply by asking the students what they would like to do, 
and how they would like to learn something, we are giving them a voice within our classroom and engagement will increase. Can you leverage perhaps that and, and your thinking around that particular first book and everything you've just shared so beautifully with us around what you believe now is the purpose of learning in today's world? Well, I think because we now sit in this information accessibility and overload system that it's no longer about the learning of one thing, but rather of figuring out the tools and also learning how to adapt to different environments. And that's not something that I can teach kids how to do step by step. I can only model what I need and how my identity impacts what I need and then how I can advocate for that. And so when I think about that first step, which to some seem really scary, asking kids to reflect on the choices that you have made, asking kids to become active participants in everything that happens in your classroom, I know that that can seem overwhelming, but at the same time, my ultimate goal now as a seventh grade English teacher is for kids to leave my year knowing how they learn best. Not, I mean, yes, I want them to read and write and, and explore the world, but I really want them to walk out of our classroom and go, I have learned tools that I can apply to anything or many things that I want to pursue. And I think that that's the learning, the role of learning these days. It's showing kids that it's not as much about the content. Again, it depends on kind of which direction they want to go in. There are certain things that you have to learn, but, but how am I going to make this work for me and how am I going to invest into that? And too often, we don't make room for that. And we, and we make that like the end of the year. The end of the year is when kids have creativity and choice. The end of the year is when we plan stuff together. Whereas we should have been doing it from the beginning. Because I'll tell you this, in my 10 years of doing this, it's a hot mess in the beginning. You know, we have this fantasy that when we give kids freedom and creativity, that most of the kids are just going to explode because they've just been waiting for this opportunity. Yeah. But instead, what we see is timid. We see kids going, I don't know how to do this. Just tell me the steps and I'll do the steps. How do I get the grade? Because that's what we've been teaching them all these years is to sit and be compliant and to be nice. And so when we start this journey at whatever part of the year we're in, but at the beginning of the year, which is what I do it, then we can see the incredible growth throughout the year. And that's for me is the real learning. Not so much of like, did they analyze that story or were they able to write a summary? Yes, those are skills they need, but that's not what, what they need after me, you know? Peniel, one of the things that, um, that we're interested in exploring is the difference between people who talk it and people who walk it. Game changers are people who actually make a difference. There are 6 million great ideas in education. Well, actually, I think there's probably a dozen great ideas in education and, and 6 million different ways of expressing them. Um, but most schools you go to, most classrooms you go to, um, really struggle to put these into practice. There's a moment there that you described in your own journey where you wake up and you realise this is not working the way I want it to. I need to do something different. That's when you make the shift in practice. That's when you go from a traditional rule-bound, orderly, compliant classroom to one which is about voice, agency, and being of children. There's, where, where you go from learning as replication to learning as empowerment. Can we stick with that moment of discovery of you as a teacher? I'm really interested in your experiences of walking other teachers through that moment of discovery. How do you help them? Because 
it's a really powerful challenge to your identity as a teacher to wake up and go, you know what? Actually, it's not about me. It's about them. And humbling, you know, because we graduate with these degrees and these fictitious lesson plans, thinking that we can handle any situation and we're put up on these pedestals of being able to figure everything out. And then when we sit in our own classrooms and go, yeah, for 80% or even 90% of kids, this seems to be working just fine. But then we sit with the 10% or whatever it is and go, and it's not working for them. And then when we throw ourselves into that, it's hard to not feel like a failure. And also because our society is obsessed with teacher perfection, right? Like what sells? The cute stuff, all of the viral stuff, uh, you know, with teachers is like that picture perfect moment, but we don't, that's not teaching. Teaching is messy. Teaching is failure. Yes, we have amazing moments, but we are not allowed to share that. And so I think for me, when I talk teachers through this journey, I think it's important for us to share our own failures because I can sit on my blog and in my books and whatever and go, here's everything I have figured out and just do exactly like I do. And then it will be great for you too. And then when a teacher picks that up and goes, why isn't it working for me? I, I am now making them feel even worse. But instead I can say, here's what I figured out. Here's what worked for me. Here's what you can try. And hey, it's okay if it didn't work. That means people can come along on the journey and also adapt it to their needs because that's what it's going to be. Even after 10 years of doing this, I still know that I have so much to learn and it's going to come from the kids that I teach. And so I think when we allow ourselves to recognize that this is not going to be perfect, that inviting other voices into the teaching is sometimes going to feel really overwhelming, really scary. And sometimes it's going to feel like we don't have enough time to do it. But at the same time, we also have to realize that that's where the true growth and change is going to, is going to come from. And so what I tell teachers all of the time is start with that one step. What's the one thing that you can invite students into? Because once you kind of let go of that one thing, whether it's your seating chart or whether it's where they sit when they're working or who they're working with, or maybe it's an open-ended project or whatever it is, then you can start to see that this is possible. I mean, I remember giving up my seating chart and assuming that it was going to turn into anarchy. Mm. Why? There were nine. Like, it was fine. Like, nobody burned down the school. But we have this idea that everything in teaching needs to be controlled and planned because I am the adult in charge and I am the expert. But when that happens, every step of the way of a child's education, they graduate not knowing how to be functioning adults. And that to me is really scary. I think it's really powerful that you're sharing that kind of aha moment that you had, which is really the aha moment that you're wanting to foster within your classrooms. You know, because learning is not is is messy, as you said it. It's not linear, and and for people to encounter their own growth and achievement, uh, they've got to have ownership of that, and they've got to be given that kind of permission to be able to play in that mess and learn from the failure, uh, and and grow from the success and grow from the failure as well. So my question to you is this: a little bit more around now the how. How have you been able to kind of shift that power dynamic and put the reins back into the hands of the students? And what have you seen that has worked really well and what hasn't worked? 
so many things, um, I th which is great because I still try those things that didn't work because they might not have worked with that kid at that time, but they might work with the kid later in the year or a different kid. So for me, shifting into the how has been so important. And that's also typically what people look for. Like, okay, I'm on board. I want to try it. What do I do? And so I will say that the biggest tool is always reflection, right? Questions and conversation, whichever mode works the best for you and the, and the kids. Like I say all the time when I'm out speaking, and I think I've written it a billion times too, is that we have the best professional development sitting right in our classrooms. And, and that's saying as someone who gets invited to go out and train teachers, like I can never replicate what the very children you teach are going to teach you. So we have to open up that line of communication. How are you going to do that depends on the age of the kids that you're working with. I think about my own children. So I have four kids the ages of six, seven, seven, and 11. My six-year-old is not going to be able to sit and take a survey and write meaningful things. But you can sit down and ask her and say, when are you having fun in this classroom? When do you learn best? When can you focus best? And then use that feedback to change the way you're teaching. You know, we give them tools and we give them vocabulary so that they can learn what are all the different components that I can have a choice in and a voice in. When I think about my 11-year-old who's in fifth grade now, you know, she could, she could take surveys, she could reflect, she could sit and tell me things that work and don't work, and she could sit and brainstorm with me as we plan units and as we plan our community. And I think we do it from the moment that we can, whether it's the beginning of the year or the moment we decide to go on this journey, because you don't have to start at the first day of school. You can have this aha moment at any time in your career. Mm -hmm. But we go back and we say, what's working for you? And what's not? And then we say, how are we going to work on this together? Because one of the biggest mistakes that I made starting out on in this kind of messy, like how, how are we going to change the learning experience was that when students would give me feedback, then I would sit at home. And first of all, I would internalize anything negative, which is something I still work work with, right? Like it's hard because you are pouring your heart and soul into it. Um, but then also I would sit and I would do all the brainstorming and, and these kids would present these ideas and I would try to figure out how to make them work. That's exhausting. And also is not really sharing the control with kids. They're again, just kind of these passive participants. So now whenever we do these surveys and, and I always do one after every unit, I'm like, okay, what did we learn? If I were to do this again, how would you change it? What would you do different? And I, and I incorporate that into anything we do. But we also do it just as human check-ins throughout the year. Um, and then I say to the kids, okay, this was a huge piece of feedback. Mrs. Rip talks too much. What are ideas you have for this to change? What can I do? Here are my ideas that I've used in the past. What are your ideas? And so I think it's important for kids to then have to sit in the mess with you so that they can recognize that this is a symbiotic relationship, that I'm not running a circus show for you to come and be entertained by, that if you want this learning community to work for you, you're going to have to invest into it. And I think that's also where I see the biggest shutdown. It's not the angry kids that tune out in our classroom typically. It's the kids that are quiet. The, the ones, you know, not like my introverted shy kids, but like the kids that you silence as a weapon to keep you out, that refuse to even engage in any kind of a dialogue. And when you say like, how can I make this better? You know, they give you a shoulder shrug. Those are the kids that worry me a lot because it's like, man, you're not even, like you don't even want to try to make it better or you're not in a place to try to invest into that. 
And so how can I connect with you on a human level before we even try to like adapt the learning to you? Um, and so for me, that's like the biggest step is just going back and asking questions and not just asking the easy questions. You know, what do you wish I would never do? What do you never want to happen again in this classroom? Do you feel safe? Do you feel respected by me? It's really hard when a child trusts you enough to say, no, I don't feel respected by you. And I know every time that happens, I have to take a step back and think about, okay, how am I going to find out more about this? How am I going to react? Because they've now given me a huge sensitive piece of information and I'm the adult in this relationship. How am I going to thank them for their honesty and then ask them, how can we make it better? And that's the approach I've taken every time. Pernell, it's and it's it, it, like the, the the empowerment agenda there is really profound. I, I want to take it the conversation to the absolute pragmatics uh, around the craft of teaching. Um, w- when you talk to teachers all around the world, a lot of them will listen to you right now. They'll love what you're saying and go, but and the two buts they will raise are number one. I just don't have the time in my day and my week to do this stuff. Give me more time. And there's no more time to give them. And then number two, particularly as they start to get to what we might call in Australia the pointy end, which is typically around, you know, public examinations that lead to matriculation and competitive university entry uh, or college entry, as, as you would call it in your part of the world. Um, the, the curriculum is too crowded. I just need to get them through the next hoop. So it's, it's all a question about time and priority, aren't it? Sure. But how do we help teachers to break through that sort of barrier? I think we often look at it as a whole year thing rather than a, a unit by unit or week to week commitment. Um, I always think of, because I can tell people that, you know, when you invest in this, it, it pays off in the long run, but that's really hard when I'm standing in my classroom with 45 minutes to teach all of my English standards. You know, we, we so often fall back into the habit of just lecturing. Um, and so what I've told people is, look, one, you get a lot, you start thinking about what are all of the deep learning skills that are happening here, and then you can add in that personal learning you know, I don't know, exploration or whatever you want to do. But if it feels overwhelming, start with one unit. Start with one week where you're going to try this. And if you're like, wow, this is consuming too much time. Okay, slow slow down and say, what have I just picked up that I can continue with that did work? And then later on, when I'm not feeling as overwhelmed, I can maybe try something else again. And I think that's what I've learned too. Like, I think about, for example, uh, we just finished a a large unit that had been going on for five weeks and it was like many standards and there were lots and lots of things going on. The reflection on that unit took 15 minutes, maybe 20, depending on my class that day. And that was a one-piece survey, one-page survey. And I think about the feedback that students gave me that are now going to completely overhaul that unit for next year's kids. And all I had to invest was a 20 minute chunk of time. I just, I think about that because I fall into the time trap too. I don't have the time. Well, I have to make the time. And we also have to then be in an environment where we feel like we're trusted to do these things. I I had a hard time doing this when I had an administrator that questioned everything I was doing. 
when I had an administrator that was like, I trust you, which I have now and I've had in the past, I trust you, I know you're going to get them ready, but you need to know that I trust you to do this, then I felt a lot better about the decisions and the things that I was trying. But I also have to be aware of the kids that I'm doing this with. You know, this isn't a free for all. I have to know the kids to know what they can handle and then take them along the journey because that's what we do as teachers. And so that's why too, like none of my books are like, follow these 10 steps and you'll get there. It's really like, what's your journey? How are you going to keep yourself comfortable? How is it going to work within your system? And what time are you going to make for it? Because you're going to have to make up time. And that's why too, like I think about, we waste a lot of time on a lot of dumb things in school. And so I always tell people to do a time audit, like not your fictitious, like this is my lesson plan. Like cover yourself for a week. Where are you, what are you really spending time on? And then go, where can I cut things out? That's a wonderful uh, exposition in terms of promoting the autonomy of teachers in a meaningful way, not not promoting power, but promoting autonomy. Um, something you said earlier, which I think uh, corresponds to that analysis of time, um, which that you just gave, which is essentially that you need to see time differently. How do you help teachers see mess differently? Because we're all control freaks, we're all perfectionists. We love it when everything works and we love it when everything comes together. But as you said, Learning is messy. Children are messy. Adults, human beings are messy. How do you help teachers to see mess differently? That is a journey I am still on myself. As someone who is really organized and uh, prefers silence when she reads or when she writes, it's actually been an ongoing conversation with my students about what should the learning look like right now. So I'm about to release you into whatever task or whatever thing you're doing, and maybe it's with groups or whatever. What should that look like? How loud should it be? And I'm not talking like an artificial chart where we're like clipping it on, like we should be a voice level too. Like, no, legitimately, what's this going to look like as a community for everybody to be able to function within this learning community? So we talk a lot about adapting the learning environment to work. And that also includes for me. And so I have had to, first of all, let go of some of my rigidity, but also to be like honest with the kids and be like, there are certain things that drive me insane. Leaving your stuff everywhere is not going to work. We have too many people. So you do need to be responsible for your stuff in here and not spread it out all over. But then I also recognize that for that to happen, I have to implement systems that are easy for the students to do and use. But other things I'm much more open with. Okay, tell me why that's going to work. Like when kids are choosing partners to work with and right away I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that group is going to be crazy. They're going to be so loud. Like I'm going to be on them all the time because I'm going to be worried. I'll often say that to them and say, tell me why this is going to be good for you. And then I, then I let them try. And so there are, and there's also voice level conversations, right? Like when we read, it's quiet. Like that's what, that's what reading looks like. But when we're sitting and writing and we're sitting with a writing circle that we have self-selected, we're going to expect some, some conversation. And if you're a kiddo that really needs silence, then I'm going to try to give you a space where it's more quiet. Right. And so it becomes that ongoing conversation again, because we're all so different and we all have to function within this space of, again, how can we make this work? Now, 
I also work with a little bit older kids where they've had some choices to navigate that. If I'm working with younger kids, well, then we're probably going to do more exploration together and make it part of our teaching, right? We're so focused on SEL and social emotional learning. Why not figure out space manipulation as part of that? Hey, when you sit down to write, what works for you? I still remember my oldest daughter came running home from kindergarten. She goes, mom, I'm a writer. And I said, oh yeah, <laughs> tell me about that. And she goes, when I sit on the floor next to Sophia on a pillow with a sparkly pen, I can really write. Because her teacher had allowed her to like figure out where in the space she, she wrote best. And she, you know, and she brought that home with her. And think about how powerful that is if we start that in kindergarten. You know, what, how big of a mess should I expect right now? And how are we going to contain it? And what's our routine? And what's our expectations? Because then kids also get to feel personally invested in the environment. Yeah, I really love what I'm hearing here, you know, today, Pranil, because your your commitment to a true kind of personalized uh, learning experience for each of these young people in your care is is uh, admirable. And it extends to not only your generosity in wanting to know them as people and providing them with the psychological safety to take those kind of learning risks that you speak of, but it's also extended into you being a prolific writer and you've published a number of books now where you share these lived experiences and and um, your own fallibility, as well as some really great sage advice. It leads me then to the kind of next part of the podcast, and that's an emphasis in you establishing the Global Read Aloud program. And you just touched upon writers and readers uh, in, in your response just then. So again, the construct of something like that, which we're going to uh, ask you to talk about, about how that came about and why, is for me, speaks volumes about the type of educator you are, someone who was continuing to think not only about giving back and empowering the individual student, but empowering a system. So can you talk a little bit about what motivated you in that space? I wish I had like such a great origin story. I should invent one one of these years. So truly the, the global read aloud was it. Ha so the invention of the global read aloud happened that same summer where I was going to quit my job. Um, and, uh, and I was driving in the car with my husband and we were listening to NPR national public radio here in America. And they mentioned Neil Gaiman and I love Neil Gaiman. So I cranked it up. And they were talking about how someone had invented this global book club using American gods and they were using Twitter and they had a common hashtag and people were just like, all they had to do was get the book and then they could have this conversation on Twitter. And uh, I was like, that's really cool because I had just gotten on Twitter and I was just like figuring out this whole like social media connection and like sitting and talking to strangers and what they could give me. And I, um, as the story goes, I turned to my husband on this drive and I was like, someone should do that with kids. And he was like, why don't you? And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I had just started a blog and I was like, we could use wikis to connect because I just learned about wikis, <laughs> which now like knowing wikis, like that would not be a good idea. And, uh, and I did what I always do, which was I didn't think about it. I was just like, yeah, we're going to do this. And I don't know if anybody's going to want to do it with me, but how about, I always do a read aloud with my fourth graders. How about we just do the same read aloud and share something? And so um, the original blog post on the first original like global read aloud blog was truly like, I have this idea. We're going to read a book. Do you want to do it? And we'll use something to connect. And I, I, I sent it out and I, I think I maybe had like 47 followers on Twitter. Like it was like infancy. 
And, but some of those followers had a lot more followers. And so immediately they were like, yes, where do we sign up? I don't know. <laughs> I hadn't thought that far. So it was like everything became this journey of yes. And now I got to figure out how to do that. And I'm so glad that that's how this project started. Because if I had known that it would grow to be this global thing that would change the lives of kids and teachers and schools and the authors, I would never have done it because I wouldn't think that I was the person to do it. Like, who am I and how dare I come out with a global idea? And so the, 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 I, the, the global read aloud, like even the name was just like, that sounds good. Like global read aloud, maybe we can get, and I remember when people signed up. So that first year we did Little Prince because it was my favorite book. <laughs> so I chose it. I think we voted, but it, I didn't care. I just chose it. And because um, that was the book I was going to read aloud. Like it was like a false democracy. People felt they voted and they're like, oh, this book won. And it didn't work well for fourth graders, by the way. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, um, not for a class read aloud for that young. And, uh, and I think we had maybe like 300 kids do it. And it was really cool. It was really cool. And we shared drawings and we Skyped with another class and people shared like videos from their classroom. And after it was done, I was like, that was fun. And people were like, when are we gonna do it again? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, no, we should do that again. I was like, no, that was a ton of work. I don't have time for that. And they're like, how about next year? And so that's how it started. And it just kind of blossomed. But I'll also tell you that what the Global Read Aloud has now taught me is how huge my blinders can be. That when I was selecting books, I didn't really think about whose voices I was giving a platform to those first few years. You know, it was truly just like, oh, that book sounds good, which is fine. But I never thought about like whose voices am I normalizing when I now put this stamp of approval on it and I'm effectively asking kids around the world to read aloud the same book. And that's not to disparage the incredible titles that were picked those early years because they truly were amazing. But now, 10 years in, I think much more about the global impact. I think about whose voices are we giving space to, whose books are not being discovered, what are the conversations that will connect others, that will teach us uh, maybe about things that we haven't lived or things that we are living and now others are going to learn to learn about that. And, and how is this going to impact our, our understanding of others? And I especially living in these uh, divided, continually divided times in the United States, I think about story and how it can bring us together and how hard it is to be afraid of people when we connect with them. And so now I feel the, the, the rightfully so huge responsibility of picking books that will do all of those things and will really tear down walls. Yeah, Peniela, when we talk with, um, uh, when we've been talking with Dr. Henry Masoma, he, he tells very similar stories about awareness of, of different narratives uh, uh, and and the power of selection in that way. So much of what you've been talking to us today um, talks to something that our research at Circle tells us, which is that we teach who we are. In other words, that if we are reflective, then we will teach children how to reflect. Um, if we are uncomfortable with mess, then we'll teach children to be uncomfortable with mess. If we are creative and innovative, like you are, I mean, you're a terribly innovative person. Um, and, and if you have an understanding of the way that creativity works, in other words, you don't necessarily have to come up 
with an idea from scratch. You can take somebody else's idea and adapt and iterate from there like you did with your project. Um, all of that is terribly uh, important to understand our relationship in in modeling, in, 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 in coaching and scaffolding for children, the sort of people they need to be. So that one of the other pieces for us, um, and again, we see this in your work, um, is that global citizenship in particular is a really key aspect of every classroom and every learning environment today. The notion that we can just live locally and, and, and uh, forget what's happening elsewhere around about is that's that's gone so how can we make classrooms places that connect with the rest of the world and teach global citizenship well i think it depends on resources right um because of course you you want people to physically somehow connect with others but sometimes that's simply not within our grasp and so i think that the the easiest place to start is to to disrupt what kids are reading and disrupt the media that kids are surrounded by to make sure that they're not just seeing mirrors, as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop would say, of their own existence. And to constantly think about uh, the question that I have, we have a year-long question in my classroom this year, and it's whose voice is missing? And how is that impacting our understanding of the world? And so to really think about how what do I think of others, whether they're outside of my own identity or outside of my lived experience? And, and how does that impact how I now interact with them? But how can I then break down that and learn about them instead? And I think about global collaboration too, you know, I mean, obviously the Global Read Aloud is founded on this idea of global collaboration, but it doesn't have to be even that fancy. It can simply be jumping on and watching videos of school in other places or just going out and, and interviewing people to learn about their lives and their stories. I think we have this beautiful plethora of social media that we can use to connect. We can also use it to just sit in our own world and, and overinflate our own importance. And we can really hang up our self-esteem on the, the likes and, and the views and all of that stuff. But I want to know what young people, people are going to do with the platform they've been given. And so how are you going to impact other people? Because that's a conscious choice. And so I think about even having that conversation with kids that doesn't require resources to say, those of you who are navigating these spaces, what is the intended impact you have on others? And are you even, is that even something you're thinking about and why not? You know, what are you hoping others see you as and, and what you're putting out there? How does that impact how others view you? So I think that we can take this idea of global and really also shrink it into personal and then making sure that we're giving kids a chance to talk with other kids and learn about other kids and, and to tap into what the social networks that most of them are already in or many of them are all, all in, not everybody, of course, in the world. Um, and so I think just like the times have changed, so does our utility of global collaboration, where I used to do a lot of kind of like, we're going to create and present. Now I think about global collaboration much more of like, no, we're going to sit in the mess together. We're going to learn together. We're going to learn from each other. And, and, and that's going to change us as a human being and an understanding of the world. Because you're right, the world that we live in, you know, borders can only define us so much. And, and even within, you know, I think of even the, the community that I live in, there's so many different lived experiences. And do, and do kids understand that? You know, why didn't I have a full under, fuller understanding of that until I was in my 30s? You know, it shouldn't be that way. One, one of the most uh, important aspects of 
developing a conscious global perspective and helping young people understand their responsibility around being change agents in society and and people of great human endeavor is of course equipping these young people with foundational skills around literacy and numeracy to be able to then communicate and cut through be able to empathize and listen um, and then of course to be able to synthesize that define it and then act can you share with our listeners a little bit around how you have been helping young people not only in your local context but globally connect to the literacy experience and why cultivating those kind of foundational skills of literacy is still so fundamentally in giving these young people then the tools to have that voice and agency you speak about? Well, I think the biggest thing that I can do is, is to share my ideas freely and to hold the hands of others that are on this journey, much like mine was held, and to open up the door and pull others up with me to share this platform that I've been given to highlight the work of so many others who are now picking it up and doing it. I think because if I can impact the adults, then those adults can go out and impact the kids. And I think that that's so important, right? That's why I, I spend time traveling and leaving my own family. Because I think what we need to understand is that kids need skills to make choices that make sense to them. If we don't center the work that we do on their identity, we have not truly changed that child. And I don't mean identity as in what do you want to be when you grow up and now I'm going to cater everything to that, but it's going, what are you invested in? What don't you know about the world? And to help them build that curiosity also so that they can recognize their own shortcomings. I know one of the big things that we've worked on this year, we did an inquiry into inquiry because my students had never had just the chance to sit down and go, how do I recognize bias? How do I recognize who these people are that are putting out this information that I'm now passing on with my stamp of approval? You know, how do I find a good source? How do I take what I found and, and recognize their bias, but then still check their facts? And it's hard. And it's messy. And the kids did not love it. They, if you'd walked into our class, you wouldn't have been like, this is the best unit ever. No, it was really hard work. And I have, I'm under no illusion that my students are going to continue to do that process as they leave. But at least somewhere in their head, they hopefully should be able to be more critical thinkers and readers. And here's the thing. Because we have taught kids that teachers are infallible. They learn to not question authority, and that scares me to no end. So I teach my students that of course they can question my practices. Of course they can question what I'm doing and why, and I'm not gonna get offended. Instead, I'm gonna try to explain to them, why are we doing that boring thing that you don't wanna do? Or why is this something that's important enough that we have carved out time for it? Because I want them to question, and I don't, shut their voices by saying you need to do it kindly. I used to do that a lot where I'd say, well, there's ways to advocate for yourself. And yes, there definitely is. But at what point too, do we teach them to take their anger and turn it into action? You know, at what point do we say, no, you have the right to raise your voice. And so that's a message I take out to other educators too, of going, how are we teaching young kids to advocate? If we're telling them that you can't advocate in my own classroom, because then everything we're saying is a lie. Yeah, and, and Peniel, that's, that's something that we would refer to as the, 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 the tyranny of niceness. Um, and, 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 and niceness is not necessarily kindness either to the uh, perpetrator 
or to the um, or to the uh, subject of that niceness. Um, listeners, you can you can make contact with Peniel at at Peniel Rip. Um, she is uh, she is a prolific author as well as an initiator as well as a passionate teacher. Um, her book, Passionate Readers: The Art of Reaching and Engaging Every Child, um, is 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 out now. What's your next challenge? Oh, besides uh, surviving, homeschooling my children as we're shut down, um, I I don't know. Um, I think I still have so much to learn. And I think I have so much growth to still do. I want to find a way to invite people into the mess of our everyday in our classroom. That's what I'm getting up early and writing every morning of just this conversation of this is what it looks like day to day. I don't know what my next challenge is. I'm assuming it has to do with writing and kids and just trying to to give others the permission to make big mistakes and to learn from it and to continue to just make big mistakes myself and, and grow from it. Fantastic. Well, it's been a real privilege uh, and a pleasure talking to you today. I've learned a, a lot about um, learning about myself as a teacher and how my learning about myself as a teacher influences um, the learning of the students that I've got. I've learned a lot about uh, confronting um, that which in myself might hold me back, the, 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 the blinkers or the blinders as, as you talked about it, it and so much of of, of what you're teaching us is around how to see things differently and to see through, as Mintzberg would say, to see through and to see it through in the end. I just want to also say thank you very much for remaining curious. I love that story that you shared with us earlier about your mother migrating and, and you know uprooting you all and bringing you to a country so foreign to your own existence, particularly one that on the happy scale is so ranked highly. Uh, Remaining curious is central to everything. So, but, so I'll finish with this quote. This will be familiar to you because you wrote it. And that quote is, with ownership comes a deep engagement because the learning environment is more theirs. Students should not feel like visitors in our, in our rooms. It should feel like a safe environment that they can create, experiment, and perhaps even fail. Thank you very much for sharing your journey today. There's no doubt that we're going to hear so much more about what's next for you. And as uh, Phil said, people can contact you on Twitter via uh, Pranil Rip with a double P. Uh, and uh, we wish you all the best on your journey. And we look forward to you visiting us one day in sunny Australia. Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.